This is tax update for Saturday, August 27, 2005. Tax update as normal is intended for those who are able to do their own independent tax research and is not intended for those who are not tax professionals or who are not skilled in doing their own research. Any conclusions stated on this broadcast should be independently confirmed by the tax professional listening to it before any action is taken. In today's podcast, we're going to talk to you about an issue that arose on the tax professionals discussion group on Yahoo, where a case that recently came down in the tax court, a summary opinion, dealing with the issue of who can claim the child when we have divorced parents and a divorce decree providing for the claiming of the dependent by the non-custodial parent was discussed, a case that appeared to be at odds with how many of us had decided the law generally seemed to work in this area. We're also going to discuss, as that as the discussion went forward, we further discussed the changes that were made in the law a year ago in the definitions in this area and the potential impact that will have on the claiming of the dependency exemption by divorced parents. Let's take a look at the basic case. The issue that was involved and the case that was involved in this matter came down on August 1st, 2005, and it was the case of Almonds versus Commissioner, Tax Court Summary Opinion 2005-110. Now, before we get to this opinion, let's talk about the basics of what the law was. As mentioned, the law was changed last year. The cases we're going to talk about today are decided under the previous law and the regulation, the temporary regulation that was issued to decide to interpret that law. Now, the previous law, Section 152 uh, E, E1, tells us in general in the case of divorced parents, the custodial parent gets the exemption. Now, those of us have been practicing tax for a while and were practicing back in, in the early 80s when this came out, may recall that Congress put this provision in the law primarily to try and get the federal courts out of deciding fights between divorced parents. The law was changed to make the default rule that the custodial parent got the exemption unless that exemption was released to the non-custodial parent. In essence, this would be a simple determination. Either the non-custodial parent did or did not release the exemption, and once that was done, we were done with deciding how the case worked. So the federal courts no longer had to get in the middle of fights or decide who had provided support or whether certain other issues had been met. The courts simply were to apply this mechanical test. Now, Code, 150, code Section 152E provided that under 152E2 that the custodial parent could release the claim for the exemption. But if that happened, the code as previously in place stated, the exception where the custodial parent releases claim for exemption for the year. A child of parents described in paragraph one, that is divorced parents, shall be treated as received over half support during the year from the non-custodial parent if the custodial parent signs a written declaration in such manner and form as the secretary may by regulations prescribe, that is an important clause, that such custodial parent will not claim such child as dependent for any taxable year beginning in such calendar year, and the non-custodial parent attaches such written declaration to the non-custodial parent's return 
for the taxable year beginning during such calendar year. Note, according to the code, as it existed and applied right up until the beginning of this year, so it applied for all returns you have filed to date, essentially you must have a writing in the form as prescribed by the secretary in the regulations, and the non-custodial parent must attach that declaration to the return. As well, the code goes on to note that such written declaration must note that such custodial parent will not claim such child as a dependent for the taxable year in question. Now, the IRS did get around to releasing regulations, and what those regulations told us essentially was that the IRS was going to issue Form 8332, and that clients needed, or taxpayers, non-custodial parents, we should say, who were going to claim a child had to have that form signed by the custodial parent, either that form or a form that conformed to all the details, essentially, of that form. That was the method the regulation, temporary regulation, provided for complying with this rule. Into that background, we then got to the case law. The problem we ran into in the case law was that in the real world, people don't go get the form signed. In the real world, what many times happens is a divorce decree is finalized, and either because the parties in question simply didn't follow the advice of counsel or weren't given adequate advice by counsel on this matter, a written declaration is not signed and not presented. So the written declaration does not happen. Not surprisingly, sometimes divorced parties aren't getting along very well. Sometimes they don't talk well together and interactions are somewhat strained. This means the whole theory of getting this document signed turns out to be somewhat of a problem, especially if the signature and granting of the Exemption is conditional, for instance, on the up-to-date payment of child support. In many cases, it becomes difficult to continue to receive that document or that document will be withheld pending the fact that there is a dispute going on about whether something should or shouldn't have been paid, whether the amount should or shouldn't be what it is, etc. for various items that go on. So for various reasons, because we have former spouses who simply don't communicate, or we have former spouses who simply don't understand the rules, non-custodial parents who don't understand the rules in question, we often end up with a situation where taxpayers did not have that form signed and properly executed and attached to the return. Now, that's not going to be a problem normally mechanically as long as both parents don't claim the dependent. Of course, when we have disputes and we have parties who are upset with each other, the fact that both of them end up claiming the dependency exemption is not surprising. At that point, we have two parents, two returns before the IRS, both claiming the dependency exemption, and the IRS now is going to go to court and decide for one or the other, they're going to claim that the dependency exemption must be lost. Into this mix we get to the tax court and the various cases that have come down in this area. Now, there have been a number of cases over the years. We're going to talk about a few of them here in background before getting on to the Omens case. Going back to 1996, an early case that actually dealt with this area was the case of White versus Commissioner. 
And in this case of White versus Commissioner was probably one of the ones that points out the purely mechanical test. In the case of White, Mr. White had was a non-custodial parent. The divorce decree provided he would be able to claim the dependency exemption. And his former wife signed a letter purporting to give him the right to do so. The problem was the letter that he obtained failed to have all of the details required by the 8332, and no 8332 was filed. Basically, that became a problem. For that reason, the court denied Mr. White the right to claim the exemption. The opinion stated, essentially, in substance, the court finds that the November 6, 1989 letter signed by Ms. White fails to conform to the substance of Form 8332, as required by Temporary Regulation 1.1524TA. The letter fails to state the years in which Ms. White was releasing a claim for exemption, nor does the letter state the Social Security numbers of either parent. Most importantly, the letter fails to explicitly state that Ms. White would not, contain, would not claim Christopher and Allison as dependents. In fact, for 1992, Ms. White did claim the children as dependents. The letter relied on by petitioner is essentially nothing more than a restatement of divorce decree. It has no other meaning or significance. While the court sympathizes with petitioner and understands petitioner's intention in having Ms. White sign the letter prepared by him, unfortunately the requirements of section 152E2A have not been met in this case. The court goes on as a final note to state that Mr. White's remedy, if any, lies in state court for the enforcement of the divorce decree. The White case followed a very literal reading of the regulation and the requirements imposed by the regulation. In essence, under White, if you didn't have a document that contained all of the required information found on the 8332 and was signed by the client, signed by the spouse, you had a deficient document. A deficient document meant the non-custodial parent did not get the exemption. Now, the problem we have here is the IRS instructions and the publications in this area didn't make clear the re need to have something exactly like this. In fact, as many of you probably remember, the instructions used to basically state you could go ahead and attach to the return a copy of the divorce decree. Well, as the White decision and other decisions made clear, that's probably not going to be adequate since most divorce decrees would not contain the information. In fact, the White case notes the six things on the 8332 that it requires the name of the children for which the exemption claims were released that may or may not be in your decree, years for which the claims were released may be in the decree, signature of the custodial parent that often is in the on the decree, so that's fine, although we have another case where that didn't happen, and we'll go into that one. The social security number of the custodial parent. Well, I don't remember seeing that one very often in many divorce decrees. Date of signature and name and social security number of the parent claiming the exemption. The problem is if all six of those criteria are required, it is virtually impossible for a divorce decree to meet the requirements of the regulation. But the white opinion seemed to suggest that a decree had to do just that. In 2000, the tax court, in a published opinion, Miller versus Commissioner, 
went on to state, essentially, that to reiterate the issue that you could not claim the exemption by attaching a by attaching a copy of the divorce decree, even if you had a decree that was entered into judgment by the by the court as part of the divorce settlement. In the Miller case, the judge in question had certified the divorce decree. The counsel for the custodial parent had signed on the custodial parent's behalf the decree. The court held that that signature by itself would not be valid. As well, it is. it was a case that many of those things was in fact a case, I should say, that that issue also was that we did not have all the details in 8332 involved. Now, the Miller case did go on and say about the IRS publications, it noted specifically, our review of the relevant IRS publication reveals the guidance given to taxpayers for the years that issue is less than clear and may even be misleading regarding the effect of a state court decree on the ability of the non-custodial parent to claim the dependency exemption for his or her own child. However, unfortunately, the fact that an IRS publication is unclear and accurate does not help the taxpayer. And the court goes on to note that the precedent is there that publications do not bind. Now, that has always been the position of the tax court. What's unusual in these cases is that the IRS pushes a position that is contrary to its publications and instructions and not only does so once, but did so multiple times. Normally, for what would most likely appear to be public relations reasons, the IRS doesn't do so. It's a little embarrassing to go out and have to tell a taxpayer that, in fact, you have uh, told them that they could do something and could get the exemption for the child and they followed your instructions or believed they did and legitimately believed they followed your instructions and the court even could reasonably conclude a rational person would have believed they followed them and then tell them, well, I'm sorry you don't get it because the law really doesn't provide that. Why are these cases different? Well, these cases are different because remember how these tend to arise. These cases almost always arise because the IRS has two returns claiming the child. The IRS now, the one thing that they probably hate more than appearing to have the PR problem is appearing to be whipsawed by a set of facts where clearly only one party should get the exemption. Now the IRS feels constrained. The law says only one of them gets the exemption. The IRS cannot give the exemption to the custodial, to the non-custodial parent who didn't follow the rules without allowing it essentially to both if, in fact, under the law, the custodial parent is going to prevail in showing that, in fact, the transfer did not take place. And that's going to cause us a problem. So the IRS is kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. For that reason, they prosecute these cases. Now, the Miller case was interesting for another point, too, and emphasized the tax court's view. And this was a published opinion. The Miller case was a published tax court opinion from 2000. That is 14114 TC 184, published 
March 14, 2000, that the court also noted that the custodial parents' claim to pendency exemption was based on a reading of state law, which provided that, quote, a parent shall not be entitled to claim a child's dependent if he or she has not paid all quarter child support for that year. Uh, basically, the court dodged this, stating specifically that, in fact, Congress intended to remove the federal courts from that type of dispute when it amended Section 152E in 1984. Instead, it merely decides, did the person technically file? So the court was saying, we're not going to get into the state law question of whether he could or couldn't be allowed to claim the dependent or decide if a state could even decide that matter. What we're saying is federal law simply says there are these steps, they are executed or not. Mr. Miller did not execute these steps properly. Because of that, the other claim, which obviously Ms. Miller wanted to claim the child as a dependent, she had listed the child on her return, the court noted they weren't going to go there simply because they didn't have to. Well, it seems like we have some pretty straight law here now. Either you get the 8382 or you're in big trouble. And if you don't have the 8382, you're not going to get the dependency exemption. Well, into that came a case in 2002 that probably didn't get a lot of notice at the time, but became the springboard from which the case omens comes and kind of a case to decide that maybe the tax court's back into deciding state law. And when we see the law change that took place last year, we may really be back in that position anyway. The case was Bramante versus Commissioner. Tax Court Memo 2002-228. This case was filed September 12th of 2002. Now, Ms. Bramante is not the non-custodial parent. Ms. Bramante claimed the child on her return. The IRS disallowed it, claiming that she had executed, in fact, an 8332. But, aha, said Ms. Bramante. Basically, she she hadn't filled it out quite properly. Well, that's probably not surprising. Many of you have seen clients who don't fill out forms quite properly. And she claims because though she had not technically filled it out exactly as the regulations require, it was invalid. And without a valid form, her ex-husband wasn't allowed to claim the dependency exemption. Therefore, the exemption should be hers. Now, the problem Ms. Bramante had was, of course, that the child, the uh, divorce decree made it very, very clear that she did not get the exemption. And her signature on the 8332 made it rather clear that there had been at least an intent to fill this out. And her testimony in court that she really, really didn't mean to transfer the dependency exemption was belied by the divorce decree itself that she had consented to. In essence, shall we say, it appears Ms. Bramante, at least the way the judge phrases it in his opinion, was not a sympathetic defendant. But the court had to deal with the precedent we had in the previous cases where the fact the courts had recited that missing the items that were on the 8332 that were asked for in the 8332 was enough to basically blow the exemption. So, how would the court arrive at the result it wanted to get to, which was to say that, Ms. Bramante, you meant to give up this exemption. I know you did. 
and therefore uh, I'm going to disallow this. You're not going to be allowed to come back here and benefit by claiming, oh, I fouled up filling out the form, so tough luck for my ex, even though the court orders all say that he does, you know, he should get the child. So what the court argued essentially uh, basically was that, in fact, there are very few items that were absolutely positively required to make that a valid 8332. Uh, essentially, what the court noted was, what she claimed was that petitioner's Social Security number was not filled in, hers was not on the Form 8332, and her ex-husband filled down the date of the form in his own handwriting. And she said, aha, that's it. I didn't put my Social Security number on. And if you read the White case, my Social Security number was one of the key issues, and it's not there. And I didn't date the form, and I'm required to do that, and I didn't do that. So therefore, again, it's invalid. See, we have an invalid form under the regulations. Tough luck. Well, basically, the Bramante court got around this by note, by claiming, we think your 8332 is valid, maybe. And the court went on and said, well, the custodial parent also did not include a social security number. This was just describing the white opinion. That omission was not a determinative factor. We, meaning the tax court, emphasized the lack of the custodial explicit statement not to claim the dependency exemption. Now, that is the justification offered by the judge in this case, Judge Powell, to tell us why Miss Bramante's is still valid, even though we had that. Now, if you go back and read the White case, I'm not completely sure. While it is clear the lack of that waiver of the exemption was the key issue they honed in on, the court certainly didn't seem to ever come out and state that the Social Security number was kind of irrelevant seem to read more that it was relevant. I think most people interpreted the case to mean all of those items were relevant and we just didn't have it here. We just didn't have it in that case. But the court in Bramante said tough luck sustained the IRS's position that she had truly executed the form because all other evidence suggested that it was what was supposed to have been done and that at best you were going to allow her to benefit from her sloppiness and her either intentional or unintentional sloppiness and give her a benefit and deny that benefit to her former spouse. So in Bramante, they held against the taxpayer for the IRS and disallowing the deduction to the custodial parent. Now fast forward to the Oman's case. The Oman's case, released on August 1st, was also decided by Judge Powell. Now this is a tax court summary opinion. First key caveat, as a summary opinion, it cannot be cited as precedent. It basically should not be relied upon. However, because this is Judge Powell interpreting Bramante again, it may be very useful to argue with an agent that this interpretation explains what was meant by Bramante and further clarifies the Miller decision. At least you can try that argument if you're stuck with a bad set of facts. Now, in the Omens case, we have a taxpayer who essentially ended up attaching for the to his return a copy of the divorce decree signed by his former spouse and notarized signature and a divorce decree that stated essentially 
that she was going to give up her dependency exemption. Now, Mr. Omens was examined by the IRS, as you might guess, his ex-spouse claimed the child as well. And basically, he got into court, or he got into the IRS, and on appeals, the IRS basically said, well, you know, if your ex-spouse will just sign the 8332, we will go ahead and allow this on your return. So basically, we need her to do this. So the taxpayer went back out and got essentially got her to execute the 8332. And the court opinion notes it was on the advice of her attorney that she forwarded it and she executed the form and forwarded it to the appeals officer. Well, the only problem was she didn't execute the form properly. Uh, to quote from the opinion, Form 8332 is comprised of two parts. Each part requires the names of the dependents, the years or years to which the waiver will apply, the custodial parent's signature, the Social Security number of the custodial parent, and the date of the signature. Part 1 is entitled Release of Claim to Exemption for Current Year, and Part 2 is entitled Release of Claim to Exemption for Future Years. In Part 1, designated for the current year, Ms. John Meyer, the custodial spouse, provided the names of the two children in the year 1999, but did not provide her signature, her Social Security number, or the date. Part 2, designated for future years only, she provided the names of two children and listed the years 1993, 1994, 1995, 1996, 1997, 1998, signed the form, provided her Social Security number, and the date. Appeals officer contacted Ms. John Meyer, requested she amend her 1998 return by removing the two children as dependents. Well, and now an aside from me, that probably was the thing that suddenly caused Ms. John Meyer to realize what the real issue was. Ms. John Meyer then wrote the appeals officer claiming she had signed the Form 8332 under duress. She did not amend her 1998 return. And the respondent, tax court case, that means the IRS, issued petitioners a statutory notice of deficient for the 1998 taxable year. So what happened was the taxpayer went out, got her to execute a form, but the ex-spouse's execution was an error. Then appeals went back and said, will you please correct this? And will you also give me an amended return that takes the child off your return because you shouldn't have claimed the child? She says no. And so appeals tells the taxpayer, well, under the theory of white, it's just tough luck. You don't have a valid form. I have no option but to disallow the dependency exemption. Mr. Omens appeals. And Judge Powell essentially expands the decision in Bramante to get the dependency exemption for omens. Again, he does this through a two-pronged approach. First, he goes back and recites his claim from Bramante that the omission of the parent's social security number is not a determinative, is not a determinative factor. Uh, basically, he also notes and goes through the settlement agreement he determines essentially was valid and was equivalent document to the A332. Now, he had to stretch a little bit to get here, I believe, under the way the opinion's written, but he did get there. He noted that the settlement agreement did not lease each and every year to which petitioners in time to dependency exemption deduction was to apply. We did find it clearly refers to separate returns of petitioner and Ms. John Meyer for the year 1992 tax year and for each year thereafter, thus including the years at issue. So they say we met that test. 
As the custodial parent, her signature on the written declaration is critical to the successful release of the dependency exemption deductions. And, you know, we had, so the question was, what about her signature? The court finds there is no doubt she signed the settlement agreement. Petitioner attached. Her signature appears on the settlement agreement three times. Uh, respondent, which means the IRS, contend that her signature fails to signify her intent to claim the exemption deduction due to the absence of the language will not claim from the settlement agreement. Now, remember, in Bramante, we were told the will not claim clause was the crucial clause. We find that Ms. John Meyer's notarized signature indicates more than a mill acknowledgement of the form of the settlement agreement. The certification of her signature by Notary Public imports prima facie truth of its pertinent recitals. The notary certification only affirms that Ms. John Meyer did in fact state that she is petitioner in the above entitled case when she agreed to the settlement agreement, but also she executed the foregoing as a free deed and act, thereby agreeing the petitioner would have the dependency exemption deductions when court-ordered amount of child support payments were up to date. We find the custodial parents on the certified signature on the settlement agreement signifies her sworn agreement to the settlement agreement's contents, including petitioner's entitlement to the deduction. And the court then goes on, kind of sidestepping the will not claim language of saying, but even the proper execution of A332, which includes your language, agree not to claim, is no guarantee the custodial parent does not intend to claim a dependency deduction when he or she has agreed that the non-custodial parent is entitled to the deduction and thus avoid involving the service in the court in a dependency exemption dispute. Basically, the court now is dodging the limitation here, saying, don't worry about it. We are going to just simply say that uh, we don't care. And in fact, remember that the code said that the written declaration of custodial parent will not claim such child as dependent. I found an interesting analysis that the judge went out and said, well, that doesn't really matter anyway. They could claim them as well. Uh, the IRS was probably properly confused at this point, saying, I thought under White we had a, you must follow the literal rules here, and we're stuck with having to apply it that way, and now you're saying, well, we don't think they're really going to work for anything, so we're just going to kind of ignore them, including the code. Well, nevertheless, we find that under Bramante, using Bramante, that the judge was able to award the dependency exemption to Mr. Omens. So Mr. Omens prevailed. Again, I think this is a case of having a very sympathetic defendant, in this case, and an unsympathetic party who wasn't in court, that is the former spouse, who agreed to give up the exemption, clearly, who, and I did not go into details here, but the Vermont, but the IRS had stipulated that Mr. Omens was up to date on his child support because they had a court, the court had monitored this, the court issued the notation indicating that he had paid his child support essentially like clockwork. His child support was totally and wholly up to date and therefore the court found there was no reason. It was interesting because that is a conditional release. Remember, he only got it if he kept his child support up to date. But that conditional release the court even went to find that release was fine. They went ahead and determined the conditions were there. It does raise the question as to what would have happened had the IRS not agreed or stipulated that he met those conditions. Second, remember that back in the White case or back in the Miller case, we were told that we specifically don't want to get into any kind of state law issues or deciding these state law matters. That was the whole point Congress was after. Well, since in Omens, if we went there, we couldn't get the result wanted. Essentially, we now went there. 
whether whether a court would be willing to go there if the IRS had not stipulated that the child support was up to date or whether there was any question or dispute over the matter is another question entirely. Now, as noted, that's the law that existed and was in effect till December 31st of 2004. Last year, in October, Congress changed the law and we got the uniform definition of a child. Now, that change of law also, though, had an impact on changing these rules. If you remember, back under the old 152E, that the rule for the, basically for the custodial parent or the non-custodial parent to claim the exemption was that we had to have two things happen. The custodial parent must sign the written declaration under the terms the secretary prescribes by regulation. And the non-custodial parent had to attach such a declaration to the return. Those were the two conditions that must be met. We now are under new rules. If you take a look at 152E2 now, you're going to find the rules are a little different. In essence, now, basically, the non-custodial parent will get the exemption if a decree of divorce or separate maintenance or written separation agreement between the parents applicable to the tax year beginning of such calendar year provides that the non-custodial parent shall be entitled to any deduction allowable under Section 140, 151 for such child or, note that's an or condition, the custodial parent will sign a written declaration in such manner and form as the Secretary may prescribe that such parent will not claim such child as dependent for such taxable year or in the final cases, we have a pre-95 agreement, a pre-85 agreement. The latter doesn't happen much anymore, so we're probably under the first two. Now note, that's a major change from what we had before. The signature provision now becomes merely one of two ways of getting the exemption. Note that a divorce decree that provides that the non-custodial parent shall be entitled to any deduction allowable under Section 151 for such child is a qualification standing on its own. Now, it does lead to some questions. Does the wording of this, the non-custodial parent shall be entitled to any deduction allowable under Section 151, indicate that the grant must be unconditional? What happens if we have a conditional grant? As we did in Omens, Mr. Omens gets the exemption if he pays the child support. In that case, do we have a 152E2A little i waiver where he's going to get it, period, doesn't matter what happens, or do we have a little 2i where we must go the route of getting the non-custodial spouse to sign because this decree did not provide he shall be entitled, period. It provides he shall be entitled if the following things happen. That will be interesting to follow with future regulations. Now, what does that mean we should probably be doing today? Don't forget, even if the 2005 new law changes the rules, it doesn't change it retroactively. We still have the problem for any years in dispute currently, including the returns you may still be filing on extension. You have to meet the old test. Under the old test, if you are representing the non-custodial parent, clearly it is still in your best interest to have them have the 8332. 
In fact, I think you have to counsel them that if they don't have a properly signed and executed 8332, there is a significant risk the IRS will disallow the dependency exemption if their former spouse claims the child. Therefore, proceed at your own risk if you don't get that form filled out and if you attach instead a copy of the divorce decree. I do think following Bramante and following the case and the theory of Oman's, you can try to argue for a divorce decree if it contains enough relevant information. One problem we have with Bramante and Omens is it's not totally clear what is the absolute required information that's got to be in there. Clearly, the more items that duplicate the 8332 that are in a decree, the better off you are. The only thing we know for sure that at least Judge Powell believes you can leave off is the Social Security number. Everything else appears to be required. And under the Miller theory, it does appear, and remember that's a published tax court opinion, that if the decree is not signed by the spouse, by the spouse who's giving up the exemption, that is fatal. That will not allow you to claim the exemption no matter what. So we have a fatal flaw there under that theory. Uh, how do you reconcile Miller? Maybe difficult. It is somewhat difficult if you read Miller and Omens to try to reconcile the two results. And I'm sure Mr. I should not say Miller, I should say the, the original White case. I'm sure Mr. White would have a difficult time understanding why Mr. Omens got the deduct, dependency exemption and he didn't. But that's another issue entirely. So it gives you an arguing point, but I tell my clients I don't really want to be there with an arguing point. Finally, what do you do for 2005? I still think clearly the best counsel to clients is to get the 8332 signed and executed. I think it appears the only safe way to use a decree is to have an absolute unconditional waiver. And if you're going to have that, why not just require the custodial spouse to sign the 8332 releasing for all future years and just not worry about the problem? So to fix that, in, I'm going to need that document anyway. Uh, keep an eye as well for IRS guidance in this area. This has been the tax update for August 27, 2005. Tax update is intended for tax professionals who can research these positions on their own and is not intended for those who are not skilled in tax research. Again, this podcast may be freely copied and distributed as long as it's not done so for a commercial purpose, such as inclusion as part of a CPE program for charge. Uh, that is being presented without prior permission received from myself. This is Tax Update for August 27, 2005.